Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. I think that one of the most difficult tasks in the world is parenting teenagers. Now, not all of you have parented teenagers, but all of you have been teenagers, and so you know exactly what I mean. One of my favorite quotes on adolescence comes from Mark Twain, who famously said, when I was a boy of 14, my father was so ignorant, I could hardly stand to have the old man around. But when I got to be 21, I was astonished at how much he had learned in seven years. Kind of sums it up, doesn't it? Well, when I was in youth ministry in my late 20s, I sometimes found myself acting as an intermediary between parents and teenagers who weren't getting along, usually because the children weren't doing what the parents wanted them to do. And when I did that, I would gently encourage the parents to remember what it was like to be a teenager themselves, the kind of temporary insanity of youth. My mother told my wife and me recently that she had been hanging out late one night with our oldest son. My wife and I had both gone to bed and my, my mother and son were up watching television. And my son at that time was just coming out of what we call in our house, the puberty. Uh, when my son said to her, you know, Grandma, it is so nice not to be angry all the time anymore. Remember what that was like? Being kind of angry, anxious, conflicted, unsure all the time. That's what it's like to be a teenager. And so while I was encouraging parents to remember their own adolescence, I would tell the teenagers that everything their parents were doing all the control they were exerting was because their parents loved them. They were scared to death that their children would get hurt or, God forbid, get themselves killed. And if that happened, their parents would never forgive themselves, never be able to live with themselves. I would ask the teenagers to, teenagers to imagine what it must be like to be a parent, to be their parent. I think what makes parenting so hard is trying to figure out the appropriate use of authority, the effective use of power. And this is especially difficult because when it comes to human relationships, power often works counterintuitively. That is to say, when parents exercise power, they often get the exact opposite result of the one they're seeking. Can anyone relate to that? I remember a girl in college whose parents, out of an abundance of caution, didn't let her do hardly anything in high school, barely let her out of the house. Now, what do you think that girl did when she got to college? <laughs> there was a college professor sitting in the second row at the 8 a.m. She had herself a good chuckle about that. She told me afterwards, I could tell you some stories, RJ. On the other hand, I remember another girl I knew in high school. And I could tell that she really loved her dad, that she had a really good father. And so I asked her one day, what makes your dad such a good dad? She thought about it for a moment and then said, he's always willing to apologize to me, to ask for my forgiveness when he says or does something he knows was wrong. 
I'll never forget that. Her dad was a devout Christian man, and sometimes I think parents, especially Christian parents, think it's their job to be God to their children, right? To have it all together, to have all the answers, to do no wrong, to be completely in control, right? Teenage is about the time you figure out that that's all an illusion, <laughs> right? But this father understood that it wasn't his job to be God, but rather to bear witness to God, to bear witness to God's character, to demonstrate the love and forgiveness of God through his own humble willingness to be a human being, to confess his sin even to his own daughter. Now, I recognize that it's been a while since many of you have been teenagers or parented teenagers, but I think that the adolescent-parent relationship has a great deal of resonance with how we relate to God. Because the truth is, we never really stop being teenagers, do we? We just leave our parents' house. We keep on making bad decisions. We keep on engaging in self-destructive behaviors. We keep on rebelling. We keep on chafing against authority, right? Just look at the story of David and Bathsheba from today's uh, Old Testament reading. There's full of people behaving, you know, like teenagers, adults behaving badly in the Bible. And I think the way we feel about God, the way we relate to God, will have a great deal to do with what kind of parent we think he is. In today's gospel reading from John, we have two amazing, famous miracles. The first is the feeding of the 5,000, in which Jesus satisfies the hunger of a large crowd with only five loaves of bread and two fish. The second miracle is Jesus walking on water, walking on the Sea of Galilee. His disciples are in a boat, they're straining against rough water, and Jesus walks out to them. He calms the wind and the waves, and he gets in the boat. But what I want to talk about this morning is the one remarkable sentence found between these two miraculous stories. John chapter 6, verse 15, which reads, when John, uh, when Jesus, rather, when Jesus realized that the crowd was about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. What an unexpected, counterintuitive verse that is. The crowd sees what Jesus has done. They see the miraculous feeding he has manifested, and they want to make him king. And Jesus says, no thanks. What we see in this sentence is Jesus's attitude towards power. What we see is that he feels very differently about power than we do. Because there's a part of every one of us that wants power, isn't there? We want authority. We want control. I think it's safe to say that our culture is power-obsessed. Power seems to be the way to get things done. But when Jesus has the chance to claim power, he runs away to a mountaintop. He literally heads for the hills. Of course, this is not the only time that Jesus declines to assume power. On 
Palm Sunday, he enters Jerusalem triumphantly on the back of a donkey. The people see him as the heir to the King David, the, the rightful ruler of Israel, the one to liberate them from Roman oppression and return their nation to glory. But Jesus has no interest in their agenda. He has no interest in political power. He has come not to save people from Rome, but from themselves from sin and death and judgment and hell. And when people find out he's not the kind of king they're hoping for, they put him to death just a few days later. Before that, when Jesus comes to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor also tries to get Jesus to claim some sort of power, some sort of authority, but Jesus declines, or rather, Jesus subverts Pilate's notion of power. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate says? Do you not know that I have power to release you and power to crucify you? Jesus answers, you would have no power over me unless it had been given you from above. Are you a king, Pilate asks? To which Jesus replies, my kingdom is not of this world. I don't have the kind of power that you think I have, the kind of power that you have, the power that you want. Jesus is shockingly uninterested in political power. But he's also uninterested in relational power, interpersonal power. Jesus never tells anyone else what to do. He never tries to control or manipulate anyone, never tries to save anyone from bad behavior. I mean, he teaches, he tells stories, he puts it out there, and then he lets people make of it what they will. He's always saying things like, let those who have ears to hear, let them hear, or not. Take it or leave it, Jesus seems to say. In a world full of people behaving like teenagers, Jesus never acts like the parent of a teenager. He never exercises authority, never exerts political or relational or interpersonal power. So why is that? Well, I want to read you about a page and a half um, from this amazing book uh, called Kingdom Grace Judgments by the now deceased Episcopal priest, uh, Robert Ferrer Capon. You know, about a page and a half, it's a little bit long, but he's got a great sense of humor. And he talks about the way that we think about power and the way that Jesus thinks about power. So here's what Robert Ferrer Capon has to say. Since Noah, the flood, God has evidently had almost no interest in using direct power to fix up the world. Why, you ask? Well, the first answer is, I don't know, and neither does anyone else. God's reasons are even more hidden than his methods. But I've seen enough of the results of direct intervention to make me rather glad that he seems, for whatever reason, to have lost interest in it. Direct, straight-line, intervening power does, of course, have many uses. With it, you can lift the spaghetti from the plate to your mouth, wipe the sauce off your slacks, carry them to the dry cleaners, and perhaps even make enough money to ransom them back. Indeed, straight line power, quote, use the force you need to get the results you want, is responsible for almost everything that happens in the world. And the beauty of it is, it works. From removing the dust with a cloth to removing your enemy with a 45, it achieves its ends in a sensible, effective, easily understood ways. Unfortunately, it has a whopping limitation. 
If you take the view that one of the chief objects of life is to remain in loving relationships with other people, straight line power becomes useless. Admittedly, you can snatch your baby boy away from the edge of a cliff and not have a broken relationship on your hands. But just try interfering with his plans for the season when he was 20 and see what happens, especially if his chosen plans play havoc with your own. Suppose he makes unauthorized use of your car and you use a little straight line verbal power to scare him out of doing it again. Well and good. But suppose further that he does it again anyway and again and again and again. What do you do next if you are committed to straight line power? You raise your voice a little more nastily each time till you can't shout any longer. And then you beat him, if you're stronger than he is, until you can't beat any harder. Then you chain him to the radiator till, but you see the point. <laughs> At some very early crux in that difficult personal relationship, the whole thing will be destroyed unless you, who on any reasonable view should be allowed to use straight line power, simply refuse to use it. Unless, in other words, you decide that instead of dishing out justifiable pain and punishment, you are willing quite foolishly to take a beating yourself. But such a paradoxical exercise of power, please note, is 180 degrees away from the straight line variety. It is, to introduce a phrase from Luther, left-handed power. Unlike the power of the right hand, which interestingly enough is governed by the logical, plausibility-loving left hemisphere of the brain, Left-handed power is guided by the more intuitive, open, and imaginative right side of the brain. Left-handed power, in other words, is precisely paradoxical power. Power that looks for all the world like weakness. Intervention that seems indistinguishable from non-intervention. More than that, it is guaranteed to stop no determined evildoers whatsoever. It might, of course, touch and soften their hearts. But then again, it might not. It certainly didn't for Jesus. And if you decide to use it, you should be quite clear that it probably won't work for you either. The only thing it does ensure is that you will not, even after your chin has been bashed in, have made the mistake of closing any interpersonal doors from your side, which may not at first seem like much of a thing to ensure, let alone an exercise worthy of the name of power. But when you come to think of it, it is power. So much power, in fact, that it is the only thing in the world that evil can't touch. God in Christ died forgiving. With the dead body of Jesus, God wedged open the door between himself and the world and said, there, just try and get me to take that back. That was a long quote. Do you see what he's talking about? That the kind of love which God exercises, which Jesus exercises, is the only kind of power that can't be corrupted by evil. Right-handed power can be easily corrupted, can't it? But the power of unrelenting, unstoppable, insistent, unconditional, sacrificial love can never be stopped and can never be corrupted. And that's the kind of power that God exercises in the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the kind of power that we are interested in here this morning. 
The reason Jesus has no interest in being king, the reason he heads for the hills in today's gospel reading, is because he doesn't want to control us. He wants to love us, and he wants us to love him in return. The reason Jesus doesn't exert straight line power is because he doesn't want us to resent him or fear him. He wants us to trust him. And plus, as Robert Farrah Capon says, straight line power never works anyway. Just ask the parent of a teenager or think about yourself. And Jesus isn't worried about us getting ourselves killed like the parents of those adolescents I used to talk to. Because the truth is, we are dead already. Dead in our sins and trespasses, as Paul writes in Ephesians. And Jesus has saved us, rescued us through his own death and resurrection. Jesus dies for us. Jesus dies with us and rises again in order that we might be resurrected too. And Jesus knows that our own death, our own failure, is actually paradoxically the only way we will ever enter his eternal kingdom. To one degree or another, we're all still teenagers, aren't we? We're still rebellious, still angry, still resentful of authority, still wanting our own way, still thinking we know what's best. Just look at today's psalm. The Lord looks down from heaven upon us all to see if there's any who is wise, if any who seeks after God. Everyone is proved faithless. All alike have turned bad. There is none who does good. No, not one. We're still rebellious children. But God, Jesus, is a different kind of parent. One who can take all the abuse we can dish out, who actually took all the abuse we could dish out and came back. A parent who never loses patience, never gives up, never abandons us or grounds us. A parent who will stop at nothing to love us, to save us, to have us his children for his own. The power of God is the power of unconditional, unrelenting, unstoppable love, and it is the only hope for rebellious children like you and me. Amen.